0: Shalom and welcome to a voice calling in the wilderness, a trumpet call, a voice crying out loud for God to those that would hear so that they would return to him, that they might be warned. We are here sounding the alarm that our time is short and that we have no time to waste. Here we will expose the truth, teach the word, discuss the dangers, lies, and enemies we are surrounded by and how to engage in the war we are standing in the middle of. Today we get to receive another installment of the Chronicles of Brother French. Here again with his incredible stories of faith, hope, love, miracles and blessings. Welcome Pastor French and thank you for blessing us today. Where would you like to take us today?
1: I'd like to continue from where we did our last uh, session. Uh, I had arrived I believe in the island of Barbados and met a man by the name of Holmes Williams and I'll tell you what happened from there on um, and how things progressed. Uh, First of all, though, I'd like to say this. uh, Whatever you hear today in the way of miraculous and wonderful things that God did both for me and through me had nothing to do with my personality or my ability. It was all to do with Him. Uh, As far as I am concerned, I'm just a vessel. That's it. Without Him, I am nothing. I have nothing. I I can do nothing. But with him, all things are possible. Like the apostle Paul said to King Agrippa, why should you think it impossible that God should raise a man from the dead? And why should we think it impossible that God should do any of the things that he did in our lives? When I look back on mine, I'm amazed at all the things that did happen in the years, the 50 years that I served the Lord uh, after I got saved. Now, the last time we were together, I described how I was kind of gang, uh, I, was, I was kind of uh, kidnapped into the ministry. Uh, God backed me up into a corner. I didn't have any choice then, really. And, uh, and I went out into the ministry and began to travel. Um, I, I didn't uh, ever go to Bible college, although I had a Bible college in Birmingham, and I used to go there and, and discuss things with the principal who was a man of, of great faith and a, a wonderful man of the word, um, if I ever went to him and said, I'm having a problem in Second Kings chapter 17, he would say, oh, that's when so-and-so was such-and-such, and this was that, and the other, and the other. And he'd give me the whole history of all the things that were happening, not only in Israel, but all the countries round about, and what had happened in, before and what was happening at that time. He carried everything in his head. I mean, he was a genius. He's the only man I ever met that I actually called a genius. And he would explain things through to me in uh, words a little more simple than he needed to because he knew that my brain wouldn't take in all the things that his would. So um, I, I learned really by uh, going to him, uh, sitting with another young man by the name of Mark Finney, who was a great student of the Word. Um, and he was just a couple of years young, uh, older than me. And he used to come once a week, during the first years of me being a Christian, and he would take me through the Bible and teach me book by book and verse by verse so that I began to learn and started to go out preaching. Now, last time when we were discussing these things, that happened to me, I had got out to the island of Barbados after about a year and a half or a little more and met a man by the name of Holmes Williams. I I mention him because he becomes important later on in the story. Um After I left Barbados, we went to a couple of small islands and then ended up in Jamaica. In Jamaica, I remembered that in my wallet uh, when we left England, I had put an address of the Green family who lived in Tampa. Um, the, this family had a small church over there right next door to the uh, airline uh, the airport or not the uh, the place where all the uh, Air Force, had a, a, a depot over there. And they had quite a number of people from that depot uh, coming to the church. And uh, they'd said to me, because they stayed with, uh, with my wife and I myself while they were uh, ministering at the church I was attending in Birmingham, England, and uh, the Greens stayed with us. So Phil Green, his wife, who I ever only ever knew as Sister Green, I don't, I don't know whether she ever told me her first name, uh, and, their, and their daughter, Norma, who was in her early 30s, um, they came and st- stayed with us. And they left me a note with their phone number and said, if you're ever in America, why don't you come and visit us? Because then I wasn't in the ministry. So I'm in Jamaica and I get this note out and I get the phone number and I get through to, to uh, the people in, uh, in Tampa And Sister Green comes on the phone, hello, and I said, hi. I said, Joe French, you're phoning all the way from England? I said, no, no, I'm phoning from Jamaica. Oh, you're on vacation? I said, no. I said, since you were, a few years ago, since you stayed with us, I said, I've been called out into the ministry, so I'm traveling now as a traveling minister. You are, she said, and and where are you? I said, I'm in Jamaica, but we thought it'd be nice to, while we're this close, maybe we can come in and see you, as you promised you would... uh, You know, like to have us come visit. She said, by all means, come. She said, and uh, we'll have a weekend with you when you come. She said, let us know what flight you're coming in on and what day. And uh, she said, we'll meet you and we'll make all the arrangements for you to preach. So everything was arranged. And I arrived there um, and um, I preached on the first Sunday. Um, I had two suits that I bought from England, they were wool. I'd been in the tropics for almost two years, or a little over two years, I don't quite remember. Uh, one of the things that I'm sad about when I talk about these things, I never kept a diary. The reason I didn't, is because I never thought I'd be doing this, like telling the story afterwards. So I never kept a diary. So I have to depend on memory. And uh, my memory is not as good as it used to be. My forgettery works a lot better than my memory <laughs> these days. So... Um, uh, I, I was there at the Greens, and I preached on the first Sunday. Monday morning, I want to tell you this story because it's, it's such a touching story. Um, on the Monday morning, a man and a woman came to the, to the house, the Greens' house, and said, could we speak to your brother French? And so I said, yeah. I went out and spoke to him, and he said, he said to me, he said, while my wife stays with the Greens and your wife, he said, would you come to town with me, down to the town in, in Tampa? down to the city. And I said, uh, what for? He said, well, just, just, you know, just come out with me. And he said, I'll let you know. So I said, okay, I'll trust you. And I, and I got in the car and went downtown. And uh, so I am, uh, I'm wondering why we're going down there. And uh, he actually comes, I've got a search in my pocket a moment, because I said my memory doesn't work as good as my forgettery. And I'm trying to think of the, uh, the big, Place that he t- took me to—a great big, um, great big store—and I'll, I'll give you the name of it in a minute. I'm just sorting it out of my uh, uh, out of my pocket. And uh, oh, Montgomery Ward's—I don't think they're in business now. I think they've been bought up, uh, and uh, they only have a catalogue that goes out from a catalogue company. Uh, so he takes me to Montgomery Ward's. And uh, as we were walking down towards the men's section, he said, My wife and I noticed yesterday when you were preaching at the church that your suit was uh, a bit shoddy, you know, a, little, a bit worn. And I said, uh, I said, So that's what you noticed about me? <laughs> <laughs> so he said, Yeah. And he said, Both my wife and I both agreed. He said, I've been saving up for a new suit, but he said, We decided that you needed it more than I did. So he said, Even though he was retired, and he said, even though I was looking forward to having the suit, he said, I would much rather you had it. So I said, you, you, you're too kind. I said, I don't want to take his suit. He said, no, I want to do it. He said, let me do it because I believe God wants me to do it. So he calls the manager over and he said, this is the man I was telling you about on the phone. He said, this is Brother French. He said, uh, I want to buy him a suit. So the man takes me over to a rack of suits. And says, one of these, he measures me up, 44 chest, 38 waist, inside Lake 30. So if anybody's listening, by the way, that's, that's a suit. So um, so, uh, so, I go down this rack and, of uh, suits, I don't know whether they do it now, but suits in those days came with the trousers too long. And uh, they had to be cut, and the sleeves usually were too long as well. They had to be turned up. you know. And they had to make a lot of little adjustments to it. So I put the suit on, and he, he puts all the chalk marks over me and, and says, this was Monday morning. He said, this will be ready by Wednesday afternoon. So he said, you have it ready for you. He said, you can come down and collect it. So I said, that's fine. So we came down, and we collected the suit, and... I went back home, and on that Sunday, I walked into church in this brand-new suit. In comes this fella through the doorway, and he's got this beautiful suit on. And I looked at it, and I thought, that looks new. And I said, that looks like a new suit. He said, it is. And I said, I thought you used the money up to buy me a suit. He said, I did. He said, but I'll tell you what happened. He said, the day after we went to collect your suit, he said, I had a phone call from a man that I'd loaned a large sum of money to a few years ago, and I'd never been able to get him to pay me back. He suddenly remembered that he owed it to me, and he said, I want to pay you the money with interest, and he brought the money round the same day, and he said, I got in the car and went down and bought my own suit. I thought, isn't that wonderful of God, You know, <laughs> to repay a good deed oh, yes. by having another good deed done? So I had this new suit. And so we had great meetings there and they, they decided to keep me over for another week. And on the, on the Wednesday night meeting, a man comes to me after the meeting and he said, uh, I have a church over in St. Petersburg. And I said, oh, yeah. And he said, uh, he said, my grandfather came over here from England. And he said, um, I'm interested in always meeting English people. He said, I said, where did he come from? He said, he came from Yorkshire, England. I said, my wife comes from Yorkshire, England. Oh, I'd love to talk to her. So we get talking and he says, would you like to come over and preach at my church when you finish here? And I said, uh, yeah, by all means, you know what I mean? We had arranged actually at that time, I'd said to my wife, I'll take one or two more meetings if any doors open up. I said, and then we'll go back to New York and we'll fly back to England and see, you know, what transpires from there. I was in the stage now where I didn't worry about tomorrow because I said, God's got something in tomorrow and it'll come at tomorrow. I'm not going to worry about it before it gets here. So, um, so I said, well, yeah, all right, we'll come over and preach at your church. So I went over there and uh, we preached at his church and we had great meetings. And it happened to be Thanksgiving coming up. And so he said to me, um, would you do me a favor? And I said, if I can. He said, uh, I've got a friend, he said, that we've been very good friends in the ministry for years. And he has a, a church in Corpus Christi, which is way over the other side of the bay. And uh, he said, he's invited me over and would like me to, to take part in the service. He said, but, he said, I've recently had a transplant, a uh, uh, heart thing done. And he said, the doctors told me no strain, no, no long journeys, no, not a lot of driving, and so on. He said, I can't drive. He said, Would you do the driving? And he said, I'll pay for everything. And he said, My wife. Now, I can't remember his name, but I certainly remember his wife's name or his, her, his nickname. He called her Juggy. Now, don't ask me what that was from. <laughs> I don't know. I have not the first idea, but that was the name that he gave to a Juggy. We had great fellowship. He had a, uh, 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 I, I'm trying to think of the name of the car. It was an enormous great big thing, um, uh, big black car. And uh, so Chrysler Imperial was the name of mm. it, uh, big car. And so I had great joy in, in driving it. I loved it, you know, what I mean, never driven a car like this before. Cars in England were quite small. Here, here I am in a car, which I call a block and a half long and half, half a block wide. And so I do the driving, he does the paying, and we stopped off at one place halfway round the bay along the uh, uh, Gulf Coast and then arrived in uh, Corpus Christi at the church. Uh, out comes the pastor, a big, raw-boned uh, fella. His family came from Norway, and uh, his name was Olaf Lust- Lustigren. And uh, so the first thing he says to me is, how much do you want? I said, pardon? He said, uh, how much do you want? He said, well, are you sure of sure money? Do you want some money? And he pulls out of his pocket a roll of notes. I've never seen a roll that big in my life, never before and never since. He had, he had it in his hand. He could just barely get his fingers around it, and he had big hands. And he said, anything you want. He said, uh, you know, he said, God gives me money, he said, and I give it away as fast as he gives it to me. So I said, well, I don't really need any. So he said, okay. Uh, he said, let me know if you do. And so we had we had meetings there. And uh, I remember one of the meetings, um, the the people got rather happy. And they started getting out of, the, uh, out of the pews and kind of jumping around and dancing and shouting hallelujah and praise the Lord and so on. And I'm sitting on the back of the platform. You know, I'm a staid Englishman. Who doesn't do things like that, especially <laughs> not in church? And this fella that I was with from uh, from uh, out of the uh, out of the, the other church, uh, he, uh, he he's sitting right next to me, and he said, uh, he said, my my reason for not jumping about is I've got a bad heart. He said, "What's yours?" And so, so, so I said, "I don't have an excuse." And so uh, he said. Okay, and so we had wonderful time, and the man there said to me, um, if you ever back down this way, he said, come come in, and he said, we'll give you some meetings. So I said, oh, fine, you know, if I ever come back down this, this part of Texas, which is right on the border, as you know, Corpus Christi, of, of uh, um, the country down there. And so I, um, we, we went off and went back round to, to uh, Tampa, uh, St. Petersburg, and uh, he. when we get back, this preacher says to me, he said, by the way, he said, I've mentioned your name to a friend of mine in, in Pensacola, and he said he'd be glad to have you up there. So I said, okay. So I said to my wife, I said, uh, you know, seems like we're still going to be here for a little while, you know. And we said we have another meeting, and then we'll go home. And so we went to Pensacola. And then from there, we went to another church, and then we went to another church, and went to another church, and this was how it was. We ended up in a, a really nice church in the middle of Ohio, and uh, we had some really tremendous meetings there. And we had so many people getting saved. One of the things that I've uh, uh, discussed with Pastor here, Pastor Gary here is the fact that uh, he's a teacher, not a preacher, all right? I'm a preacher, not a teacher. Uh, whenever I preach, or at that time, whenever I preached, people got saved. So I had the anointing on me of an evangelist. Uh, and even though I didn't feel like, you know, what some people think evangelists are, whenever I went anywhere, people got saved. So we went to this church um, in the middle of Ohio and uh, in the town. And it, we had some t- tremendous meetings. There were lots and lots of people who got saved. And uh, years later, when we went back, people used to come up to me and say, we got saved in your meetings back in 1965 when you came, and I got saved in your meeting, I got saved in your meeting. That's all I, All we heard all over the church. That, to me, was the greatest satisfaction, was that people who really got saved were still going on with God. Because, you know, you can have people come forward. E- even Billy Graham, with all the crowds that he had, said probably only 10% of them at the most really got saved, even though there were hundreds and hundreds that came forward at the appeal. So I was very pleased at this kind of thing. So we went to this church, and we stayed there for three weeks, and we had great meetings, wonderful meetings. And then the fellow says, there's a family in here called the McClots. And uh, the older couple, he said, have a son uh, named John McClot, and he happens to have a church up in... in, uh, uh, What's the next state up where they build all the cars? Michigan? Michigan. He has a church up in Michigan. Pontiac, Michigan, he said. He uh, has a church up there. And so it was a... These were... Now, I found out these were what they called open Bible churches. And I'd not come across them before, but I checked them out and found out they were sound and, and good, solid cre- uh, churches that had the right uh, credentials. And so uh, I was referred to go up to this church in Pontiac, Michigan. So we, we go up there, and I meet John McGloss, and we became really close friends. And, uh, and so we, we started our meetings. Well, the meetings went so great. I mean, he already had about 500 people in his church. By the time we finished, we were running well over 700. We were there for six weeks, and the place was packed out every night. I mean, we were having meetings every night except Saturday. And the place was packed out every night, and just people streaming down to the altar and coming back every night afterwards. It was just marvelous, and uh, I was thrilled by it. I mean, the thing that thrills me more than anything is to see a person get really saved. And so we, we had the meetings, and then John McLaughlin said to me, um, I, I'm, I'm going off to the, uh, the big conference of the, uh, of the uh, church, churches, Church organization, he said, "I'm going off to their conference." and he said, "Would you look after the church while I'm gone?" And I said, "Yes." And so he said, uh, "I will be gone for about three weeks." Is that all right?" And I said, "Sure, you know and so, <laughs> so I take over the church. We're now running you know well over 700 people, and so we're having wonderful meetings. Well, I made myself busy because there was a little building next door, a little house next door to the church, which they'd put aside for an assistant pastor but they hadn't done the basement out. So while the rest of the family were away, I took it upon myself to work with the church oversight. And uh, I went and got all the lumber, and I, I actually uh, paneled out all the downstairs, all the, the, the downstairs, and put a lot of cupboards in and all so- sorts of things I built. You know, uh, one, of my, one of my specialties was doing carpentry. And so I was able to do that all the while while Art McLaughlin was away. And they got got to be very good friends of ours and came over later to England when we got back. So then we we traveled on and we go down through, um, we went over all the way to Wyoming uh, and then started traveling down uh, through the coast all the way down back to Texas. And I thought, well, when we once got into Texas, I went to a full gospel businessman meeting that I was uh, invited to speak at uh, in, uh, in Dallas, Texas. And uh, I thought, well, while we're there, why don't we go back down to Corpus Christi? So I phoned the pastor and I said, uh, we're in Corpus Christi. Uh, we're, we're in uh, Dallas and we would come down to uh, your church. Would you like to have us? And he said, sure, come on down. He said, we'll have meetings. So I go down there. Now, we had been traveling all that time by planes. Occasionally we had to take a bus because the distance wasn't long enough to justify a plane. But we were using up a lot of the money that we got. And, uh, you know, it wasn't piling up very much in our pockets. It was piling up in the airline's pockets. <laughs> so um, so we get down to uh, Corpus Christi. Now, the pastor there had a son. Uh, I would estimate him as being around about 30 years of age. His great love was cars. He had a great big open top car that uh, he had fixed cow horns on the front uh, and had a a, a a horn that sounded like a cow mooing. So, instead of getting, ooh, you know, you get, ooh, moo, like, you yeah. know, when he was going along the road. And so, he said to me, he said, uh, you're traveling by uh, airplane everywhere, aren't you? And I said, yes. He said, it'd be much cheaper and easier, you know, if you had a car. I said, it would, yes, I believe that. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I would agree to that. He said, I happen to have a 1959, he said, um, and he said it's a, a Buick, but he said it's the one with the big wings on the back um, uh, at that time, and it was blue and white, and he'd done a lot of work on it, so it looked almost like a new car. And he said, uh, if you want it, he said, uh, you can have it for $800. Now, that, you know, $800 does not sound like much now, but back in the 1960s, that was still a lot of money. So he said... $800? He said, it's yours. I said, I don't have $800. So he said, well, if anything ever happens, he said, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll see. And he said, let me know. So on the Friday, we go to the meeting. We're having meetings four times a week, and Friday night was one of the meetings. So uh, the pastor, uh, Olaf, he stands up on Friday night and he said, I have never done this before. He said, we only ever take up uh, offerings, he said, at the weekend meetings. And he said, Brother French told me that he's never asked for money, which was true. I never did. He'd never demanded any money. I never did. Um, I never told people if I needed money. That was a rule that I made with God. And I said, I will always adhere to those rules. I will never raise money for myself, I will never ask for money for myself, and I will never tell anybody if I need money. And he said, I don't know what his need is, he said, but God's laid on my heart that Brother French and Mrs. French, he said, they have a need. He said, so I'm going to take up another offering tonight. I know it's Friday night, he said, and I, I know it's pay night, he said, so I'm hoping you brought plenty of money along with you, he said, because we're going to take up a special offering. So um, after the service, he, uh, he came to me and he said, how much was in the offering? Well, normally, 250 to $300 in those days was a pretty good offering, you know. Mm-hmm. So I said, hopefully, about $300. He said, $960. Oh. I said, pardon? He said, $960. I said, how come he got that much? He said, one man in there put $550 in there. I said, why? He said, he works for the oil companies. He's one of their executives, and he's only in town about twice a year. But any time he's in town, he always comes here and puts in all his back tithes. So he said he was here tonight, and he said he put put all his back tithes, $550, in there. He said, the offering's $965. I said, I can't believe it. So... Boy, you know what I did the next morning, don't you? <laughs> I grabbed his son and I said, is that car still available? And he said, yes. So we, I got the car and we got it registered and, uh, and everything done. And I, I'm, I'm driving along four on the floor. I learned that something, you know, that I learned from the, uh, from the Americans. Uh, four on the floor and, and here I am in this nice blue car with the big wings at the back. And uh, so we started traveling now by car, which was much more convenient. We didn't have to get from airports to the church. We could go straight to the church. Um, it was easier because we didn't have to wait in airports and get on planes and so on. We just got in the car and went, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I got road maps and, and so on and so forth so we could find our way. And off we go. And we went from there and we started up the, uh, the middle of the country through Kansas and, and various places, and, uh, and then headed over back to the West Coast again and came down. And finally, we decided that it was time to go back and get up to uh, Michigan to the church that we'd, we'd had those wonderful meetings at with Art McGlott. And so we went up there, and I decided it was time for us to go back to England. One of the reasons we wanted to do that was my wife had had a miscarriage with the first uh, pregnancy. And she had to have a hysterectomy, which meant no more children. So she'd said to me, I would like to go and settle somewhere, she said, so that I can adopt a child now. And I said, well, if we go back to England, I said, possibly we can. You know, so I said, that's what we'll do. So we went to Art Mcglot's church. We had a wonderful fellowship with him, had some some extra meetings. And then I said to him, you know... um, we're going to leave and go back to England. One of the men in the church came to me and said, I hear you leaving and going back to England. I said, yes. He said, I like that car. You see, in Michigan, as many of you will know, cars get very rusty and, and uh-huh. burnt up because of the roads in, this, in the winter. Down in Texas, they don't get like that because there isn't any winter. And so he looked all the way around. He said, there's not a spot of rust on this. He said, it's as good as new. He said, marvelous. He said, how would $800 suit you? <laughs> I, said, I said, thank you very much. I'll, I'll take it. You know, so, so he paid me the $800. So it hadn't really cost us anything except for the gasoline that we had to put into it. And gasoline in those days was very cheap. So, um, so we flew back to England. Now, you remember if you heard the first part of my testimony, that we'd given up our home, and we'd given up our jobs, and we had nowhere to go back to, so we, we could only go forward, we couldn't go back again. And so we arrived back in England, but somebody had heard that I was coming back because I'd, I'd phoned up my family and let them know that we'd be back in England, and, so on, and the news got around. And uh, when I arrived in England, this man got in touch with me. Uh, he was a farmer, had a, had a dairy farm, north of Birmingham, about 50 miles, in a place called Stafford. And uh, so he and his wife ran the farm, and they had two sons. And uh, he had a great, big, enormous house, farmhouse, with all kinds of rooms in there. And he said, where are you, you going to live? And I said, I have no idea. So he said, there's two rooms, he said, in this house, and they're yours for as long as you like. And uh, he said, we'll look after you. And he said, it won't cost you anything. And I managed to get a hold of a car, quite cheap. And uh, he's, he had a, uh, a gas pump on the, on the premises because he had to fill up his tractors and so on. So he said, anytime you need gas, he said, there's a key there for you to get into the gas thing. Fill your car up, he said. Don't, uh, don't worry about it. So it didn't cost me anything for gasoline. <laughs> uh, you know, everything, everything fell into place. When God's in the business, it's wonderful how he prepares the way before you and makes a way where there is no way. So we stayed with the Prinols, and uh, they were a great couple, both quite small. I think, I think Alan was about the, the tallest of them, five foot three or four, and his wife was a couple of inches shorter. But they were wonderful people. She was a great cook, and uh, you know, we lived on the farm, and we used to get fresh milk. I mean, fresh milk. Right out of the cows, <laughs> uh, and uh, and it's it's different. It's a different kind of taste, and so uh, so what happened was, uh, I used to get up at five o'clock every morning, and I uh, I was given a shovel, and I would go up into the place where they brought the cows in for milking, and the cows would deposit a certain amount of uh, themselves <laughs> on the floor. <laughs> And my job was to clean it up before the next batch of cows came in. And so uh, I used to get up at 5 o'clock every morning. I tell you what, by 7 o'clock when we finished all the milking and it was time for breakfast, I was ready for breakfast. (laughs) I mean, you know, um, I I used to work really hard. And uh, sometimes they let me drive one of the tractors, although my furrows weren't quite as straight as they should be. But uh, we we had wonderful fellowship with Alan and Bertha. And... uh, so uh, we stayed there. So what happened was some of the churches that I used to preach to when, when I was starting off in the ministry part-time, they heard that I was back in, in England, and they got in touch. So we started getting invitations to go there and go out and preach. And uh, so that's what we did. Uh, we'd I'd be out some weekends, and other odd weekends, I'd still be there because there wasn't a booking. And uh, we were living... Like lords, really. I mean, everything was wonderful on the farm, and uh, you had everything you needed. And uh, so uh, I got these invitations, and then I got this invitation from a place called Peel Common. Now, Peel Common was a very small village down on the south coast of England, just outside of Portsmouth, where all the naval ships come in. And uh, they, they sent a message, would I go down there and preach? And so I said, yeah, I would. And so I got down there, and I didn't realize how small the place was until I got there. It was a little village, a little village, I mean little. There was just a green there with houses all the way around. And uh, if you ever think of an English country place, well, this was it. This was it, Peel Common. So I went and preached there. Now, the man who was looked upon as the lord of the manor was a man by the name of Mr. Monday, M-U-N-D-Y, Monday, And he had big business there. He was a wholesaler who distributed to the retailers. And uh, so uh, he came to me after the first Sunday I was there, and he said, would I consider coming there and being the pastor of the church, which had been closed for nine years? Nobody ever went there. And I said... Uh, I don't know. I said, that's a bit difficult. I said, how many people have you got down here? He said, well, he said, there's a brand new housing estate just two miles down the road. And he said, there's over 200 houses in there. So he said, you know, that'd be a great place to get people. And he said, all the people in the village, I've talked to them and they've all said if they had a pastor, they would come to the church. So I said, uh, okay. So I went and looked at the church. Now I'll tell you, how old this church was. They still had gaslighting in, in the end of the 1960s. There's still gaslighting inside. So he asked if I would take it and he would make sure that we had a salary. And I said, the only problem is uh, we don't have enough money to uh, uh, buy a house. And I said, uh, from what I understand, there's nobody in the village here who would be able to put us up. They've all got families, you know, and all the rooms are taken. So he said, that's nothing to worry about. And I said, why not? He said, well, three years ago, a man who built all these houses, he said, he uh, he built a house just round the corner from the church. And he said, he's furnished it. He did all the landscaping. He said, it's all ready to move into. And he, d- he donated it to the church. If a pastor was ever to come in, it was his house for as long as he wanted it. We moved into that house that nobody had ever lived in before, (laughs) you know, absolutely free. I mean, how how can you come across things like that? Three years before, God had prepared a man to give a house to the church, which didn't exist at the time, but it was there because God wanted us to have a house. So we had a house. And uh, here's one of the things that happened. We, We... we decided to adopt a child, and we got in touch with the Church of England Adoption Society, and uh, they said, uh, we can get you a boy, but it may be a year or two before we'll have one, you know, that will be suitable for you to, to be able to adopt. So we said, all right, well, we'll wait, you know. Well, eight weeks later, we got a phone call, and they said, uh, are you still interested in a boy adopting? We said, yes. They said, well, we've got one. You know, said we. We we've looked at this boy and we've looked at all you and uh, we've decided that that uh, uh, the thing we ought to do is this boy needs to to have a, a home quickly. And uh, said he's he's in good health, everything's good about him. And uh, if you would like to have him, we can have him over to the the big house. There was a, a place just down the road, uh, about a half a mile, and there was an enormous big old country house where. Uh, um, I think a family lived. They looked like the lord of the manor. I mean, they were always dressed up, you know. They, you never saw them in old clothes or working clothes. They were always dressed up, and they were always kind of uh, immaculate. Uh, they were lord and lady-like, you know. And the lady of the of that place, she was holding the baby when we got there. Um, six weeks old and a boy. And so uh, we walked in. And uh, my wife walks over, looks at the boy and said, oh, he's gorgeous, she said. Uh, I, I want to have him. And I looked at him and said, I don't think he's all that good. I think he's a bit ugly. <laughs> so, uh, so my wife looks at me, and, you know, gives me a glare and says, we're going to have him. So, so the adoption papers were all drawn up and uh, the next day he was ours. Uh, the first thing that happened to him was we had a prayer meeting on the Thursday night, and this was on the Wednesday when we adopted him. We picked him up as our own on the Thursday afternoon, and the first thing that happened to him, he was deposited into a prayer meeting. (laughs) That was his adoption. So he had a baptism, if you like, um, of of prayer to start his life off. And so um, we adopted Jonathan. And a few weeks later... Uh, we get a phone call, uh, and it's the doctor. He said, uh, we've had only just got back, he said, the results from the blood test on that baby that you adopted. And we said, yes. Well, he's a little bit anemic, and he needs to have uh, some solid foods, baby foods, but they have to have iron in them. And he gave us two names of two two kinds that you could have. And he said, these would do fine. He said, it would help him. So my wife says to me, I will go and get some. So uh, we only had the one car. So she said, I'll take the car. And she said, "Uh, I'll go. Now, she had two places that she could go to. She could either go up to Fairham, which was one way up in towards away from the coast to a little town there. And uh, that was the cheaper place to go or she could go down towards the seaside. We are only uh, about two and a quarter miles from the sea. She could go down there to Leon Soland. She said, I'm going down to Leon Soland. I said, that's more expensive down there. And I said, we don't have much money. She said, have we got enough for me to get some? I said, how much are they? And she told me, and I said, we've got enough to get just two jars, that's all. Two jars of, of whatever it is that you've got to get. I said, that's all the money we've got at the moment. So she said, well, I'll go down to Leon And she said, because it's always easier to park down there. She said, and I don't like it when it's congested and I have to park up in the in the town. So she goes off and about an hour later she comes back and she opens the door of the car and leans out and says, could you come and help me to get the, the, the baby food out? I thought, two jars of baby food and she can't carry them. Oh. I mean, you know... <laughs> What are you talking about help help you to get the jars out so i go there and i look in the back of the car there's there's a crate thing with 48 jars in i said how in the world did you get 48 jars she said well i went into the place where they sell the baby food and i told him i need two jars of this particular food he said just a minute and he went in the back room and he came back out with those 48 jars and he put them on the counter and she said i said i only wanted two jars he said i know what you said he said but uh, i've decided i'm not going to be dealing with this company anymore because their distribution is not as great as it ought to be so he said i told my wife the first woman that comes through the door tomorrow morning i'm going to give her the balance of what i've got which is 48 bottles and he said, I'll give it to her free, and then we're we're free and clear of that company. And so <laughs> she walked out of there for nothing, with 48 jars of the food that he needed, the baby needed, you know. I mean, that was the way God undertook for us. i tell you how he undertook for her to get a car. Some years before, while we were living in Birmingham and before I became a preacher, we had helped a young man who was... Uh, Kind of suicidal, uh, really, because things were going so bad in his life. He'd he'd had three girlfriends, and none of them ever turned out to be one that he was able to marry. His job, he'd lost. um, He'd had some of the problems, and he got to the place where he he thought life wasn't worth living, you know. And somebody had had brought him up to us. Now, this somebody, I'll I'll explain something to you here. My wife worked at a hospital called St. Margaret's in Birmingham. It was a hospital for mentally handicapped people. I know they've changed it now. They call it mentally challenged. But if you change the name, it doesn't change the, the disease, you know. So um, mentally handicapped was what they were. Um, I I used to go up there occasionally, but they used to have a dance on uh, every so often for all the all the patients with uh, all the staff and any of the visitors and families and so on that used to come in. And my wife used to let me go up there, but there was a big fat lady in there called Emma, and uh, she took a liking to me. And I used to spend the whole evening racing around the place trying to avoid Emma. She was trying to catch me and dance with me, and she couldn't dance a step, and she was big and enormous, and she used to stumble all over me. And I, I, I used to spend the whole night not dancing, but just escaping from Emma, you know. So, so anyway, while she was there, while my wife was there, she witnessed to Dr. Washbrook, who was a, uh, a specialist who de- dealt with these people. And he used to tell my wife, he'd say, uh, you believe in Christianity? That's a load of rubbish, he said, you know. He said, I'm a psychiatrist. He said, it's all trying to twist your mind and so on. He said, uh, there's nothing in there that's true or works or anything like that. But she kept on um, telling him, and he'd find her reading a Bible at lunchtime and things like that. and uh, so. She kept telling him, telling him, telling him, and so on and so forth. One day, she goes into work, and she's walking down the the passageway that goes to her office, which passes by his office. And as she's passing by his office, she hears him in his office singing at the top of his voice. It is no secret what God can do, what he's done for others, he can do for you. With arms wide open, he'll pardon you. It is no secret what God can do. Well, she knocks on the door like crazy, and she opens the door, and she said, what are you doing singing that Christian song? He said, I got saved. She said, you did what? He said, I got saved. He said, you kept telling me about it. He said, I finally decided to look into it. And he said, I read a few things about the Bible. And he said, I finally went to a church where they preached the gospel. He said, I got saved. <laughs> Dr. Washbrook began at that time to help young men who got into problems. And he would take one or two young men under his wing, and he would get them out of the gangs and out of, out of problems and out of jail and out of prison. And he would, he would minister to them, and he would look after them, and he would pay their way and get them through college and do wonderful things. I mean, he turned out to be a real wonderful person. And Dr. Washbrook became uh, a wonderful man. The only thing he was bad at was driving a car. He he took his test, I think it was 16 or 17 times, and uh, I think it was about the 12th time that he took his driving test that the tester actually told him to stop the car and got out of the car and said, I'm going to walk, I don't know what you're going (laughs) to (laughs) do. So... But he did, finally get, he did finally get through his driving. I don't know how he did it, but he did. And uh, so he used to bring young men to our house on a, on a Sunday afternoon and uh, have us talk to them. And uh, we, we, we were able to uh, really minister to young men who'd been in trouble, been in gangs, been in jail, been in prison and so on. And uh, so he became a great soul winner. And uh, especially with the young men, he, he, he really took a, a love to rescuing them from where they were and so so we uh, we had uh, come out of uh, Pe- we'd been down in Peel Common and we had this little church and uh, we got the these these 20, uh, 48 jars of of food for the for the kid for our son and it was all wonderful and uh, so we used to we used to travel out to churches from from the farm and then when we got the This little church, we used to to have the church, and then uh, we'd start going out to different places. Well, I was approached. Now, the only time that I ever had a dream about, I mean, a real dream about anything that I was doing for the Lord was I had a, a week when I dreamed that I was in a place where there was a mountain. And on the side of that mountain, there was a church built. And I had to climb up that mountain and get into the church. And when I did, there was a crowd of people in there. And I was ushered up onto the platform in the dream. And as I looked down on the congregation, they all began to go away and go out of the doors. But then three men would walk down the aisle and come to me. And they would come with their hands open towards me. And I I didn't understand it, you know. It's the only time I've ever had a dream like that. And I had it twice in a week. And uh, a few, couple of weeks later, after I had that dream, I was preaching in a church in in Portsmouth. And uh, a man came to me and said, he was from Wales. And he said, uh, I'd love you to come. He said, I'm preaching the church in Wales. He said, I've talked to the pastor. And he said, I'm one of the elders at the church. He said, um, I'd love you to come to Wales, he said, and, and preach at one of our Whitson conventions. Now, White Sunday was Pentecost Sunday, um, and so it was called Whitson. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he said, we have our big convention of Whitson. And uh, so I said, okay. And so Cross Keys, Pentecostal Church. I went, uh, I went there and preached on the Sunday. The, the, uh, the atmosphere was unbelievable. Uh, I mean, the presence of God, and the, those people, Welsh people can sing better than anybody I ever came across. They not only can sing loud, but they sing good, and they sing the parts, you know, all the four parts, and and the whole congregation. In the afternoon of Sunday, they had a special meeting where they raised money for, for the uh, people out on the mission field, And I remember that meeting uh, sitting on the platform. There was another speaker besides me. And I remember sitting there and I was thinking to myself, heaven couldn't be any better than this. Because there was such a sense of God's presence in the place. And uh, the singing was magnificent. And both my... I felt inspired. I think I preached better than I'd probably ever preached in my life. And... uh, the meetings were tremendous uh, and so at the end of the the week of meetings that we had at Whitson, um, I was there on the Sunday and we had a meeting in the afternoon and uh, I was sitting on the platform and the other fellow who was preaching as well uh, he went down and went back to get a drink uh, at the back of the church and I was sitting up on the platform all on my own and the people were well, going out because it was the end of the meeting. I suddenly noticed these three fellas walking down the church, down the aisle. And I looked at them and I thought, I've seen this scene somewhere before. And these three men walked down and they came up on the platform and they said, Brother French, would you ever consider coming to be the pastor of this church? And I said, um, "I said you may not believe this. I said, but I don't think I have any choice. <laughs> and I explained to them what had happened. They started rejoicing like mad on the platform right there, you know. And they said, you really would. And I said, yes, I would. I, I would come. I said, I've got a young man in the church where I am. Uh, the, one, the one at Peel Common, we, we'd started off on the first Sunday with nine adults and one child. That was our congregation nine adults and one child. In the two years that I was there, we had grown to about 260 people. And so um, I had a young man who came in there who was, uh, had actually been to Bible college and was very keen on becoming a pastor. And so I thought, well, I can leave this church in his care because he's sound, he, he knows how to preach, and, you know, he can hold it together. So I wasn't afraid of leaving it. Um, my, my ministry seemed to be one that... If if, if, I was called, if I was called to go somewhere, it was because the church was in trouble. And I found out that this church in Cross Keys was, uh, was gradually fading away. And the reason was they never had a paid minister, full-time minister. The, the minister they would had from the day that they were formed in the 1920s was somebody who worked in the mines or worked at the steel mill. And they would do part-time preaching. But they would not have to pay them because they already had a job. Never had a paid minister before. So I I thought, well, I'm going to break the the bond. You know, I'm going to break into something here. So um, I went. And a couple who had a beautiful house facing the hills in Wales, gorgeous country, uh, with a great big uh, uh, enormous glass window at the front, They actually moved out of their house so that we could move in, and they bought another place somewhere else, and we moved into this gorgeous house with this great big plate glass window that looked over the hills with all the sheep on it, you know, (laughs) and we moved in there, and uh, we had, we just had a wonderful time, and, and I'd, I'd really, the church had started to fade, and from being a church of about 700 people, it had, window uh, is a dwindled down to a little over 200 and uh, so when I went there that's what we had well in the time that I was there which was just three years we grew we grew back up again to about 450 people and uh, then I had a young man came in uh, who was also a minister and I thought well you know if needs be if God moves me on well they did and the next, the next uh, step that I took, actually, was, again, to, to help out. This story is wonderful, and I'll probably have to continue it sometime in the future. This is a time when a church that had split 30 years before, oh, oh. and they had split, um, split into two little churches in the, in the town of Berry B-U-R-Y, which was part of the greater uh, Manchester area. And one church was in the north and one church was in the south, and they never had anything to do with each other. And um, the story of how they came together and how God opened up a new building to us is just fabulous. I mean, it's unbelievable. And that church grew so quick. We were having baptismal services every month for two years, never baptized less than 10 people. And... We grew from a little over 225 people in, in that time. We grew to almost 700. And I'll tell you about it the next time.
0: All right. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. It's a real privilege to get to hear these stories and, and just be able to get a glimpse of what that life was like. So I thank you very much. Today we've been talking with Pastor Joe French, and we have gotten a glimpse into someone's life that a God has worked through, has touched, and someone who has allowed himself to be led and influenced by God, and the incredible blessings that have come through him to others' lives because his surrender, his obedience. Not in every situation looks like something that we would have planned. We don't always know exactly what God has in store for us or how he's going to work something out. But when we're obedient... When we are walking in faith, God always provides for us. As Paul said, he provides the raiment and the food. And Pastor Joe, you have showed us that today, that God always has a plan. Sometimes years in advance of when we need the, the thing to be given to us, he's already set it aside and it's waiting for our arrival. So I thank you so much for sharing that with us today. And I, I just feel like our audience is blessed by what they're going to get to hear So this has been a Veritas Resurgence broadcast, and today we've been so blessed from hearing from our brother French. Please take a moment and subscribe to our podcast, and don't forget to visit our website at vrbroadcast.org, where you can find more teaching and ask questions of the show and our guests. Also find us on Facebook at A Voice Coming in the Wilderness. And do us a favor, recommend the podcast to your friends and family. Again, thank you for listening, and have a blessed day.